Chapter Seven of Child Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Penmanship and Letters Ink always good store on right hand to stand. Brown paper for great haste or else box of sand dip pen and shake pen and touch pen for hair wax quills and penknife see always e bear from a new book of hands sixteen fifty circa in glancing over old-school contracts it will be noted that in a majority of cases the teacher is specified as a writing-master without doubt the chief requisite of a satisfactory teacher in colonial days was that he should be a good teacher of penmanship we have seen in our own day distinct changes in handwriting of an entire generation the colonists whose lives ended with the seventeenth century had a characteristic handwriting which retains certain elements of old english even of medieval script it was a handsome and dignified chirography and an impressive one and was usually easy to read the writing of the first pilgrim and puritan fathers was not over good governor john winthrop's was not much better than horace greeley's bradford's we are familiar with through the beautiful facsimiles of his relation the first half of the succeeding century did not send forth such good writers nor did it send forth writers so universally the proportion of signatures to public documents by cross instead of writing increased our grandparents and great-grandparents all wrote well in hundreds of century-old letters which i have examined an ill-written letter is an exception children at the close of the eighteenth century wrote beautifully rounded clear and uniform hands if we can judge from their copy-books little anna green winslow writing in seventeen seventy one showed page after page in a hand far better than that of most girls of her age to-day claude blanchard was commissary of supplies for the french army which landed in newport in seventeen eighty he visited the newport school and gave this tribute to the scholars Quote, i saw the writing of these children it appeared to me to be handsome 
among others that of a young girl nine or ten years old very pretty and very modest and such as i would like my own daughter to be when she is so old she was called abigail earl as i perceived upon her copy-book on which her name was written i wrote it myself adding to it very pretty Close quote. an exhibition piece is here given of the penmanship of annie reynolds a little girl of norwich connecticut who died shortly after this piece was written writing masters were universally honored in every community a part of the funeral notice of one in boston who died in seventeen sixty nine reads thus quote, last friday morning died mr abiah holbrook in this town he was looked upon by the best judges as the greatest master of the pen we ever had among us of which he has left a beautiful demonstration the beautiful demonstration of his penmanship was a most intricate piece of what was known as fine knotting or knot work it was said to be written in all the known hands of great britain it was valued at one hundred pounds it was bequeathed to harvard college unless it was bought by the revolutionary patriot john hancock who had been one of master holbrook's pupils and as we know from the fine bold signature of his own name to the declaration of independence was a very creditable scholar this work had occupied every moment of what abiah holbrook called his spare time for seven years as he had in the year seventeen forty five two hundred and twenty scholars at one time in one school his spare time must have been very short he and other writing masters of the holbrook family left behind a still nobler demonstration than this dot work in the handwriting of their scholars boston ministers merchants statesmen and patriots whose elegant penmanship really formed a distinct style and was known as boston style of writing the hands of great britain were many in number among them saxon old miss chancery gothic running court exchequer pipe office engrossing running secretary round text and letter freeze which was minutely and regularly zigzagged a well-known boston writing master was familiarly known as johnny tilston 
He was born in 1738 and taught till 1823, when he was pensioned off. He was a rough-mannered old fellow, his chief address to the scholars being the term, You Nearly Wretch. His ideal was his own teacher, Master Proctor, and when late in life he saw a scholar wipe his pen on a bit of cloth, he approached the desk, lifted the rag, and said, What's this? Master Proctor had no such thing. Tilston himself always wiped his pen with his little finger and in turn dried his finger on his own white hairs under his wing. An old spelling book has these lines for a writing copy. Ten things a penman should have near at hand. Paper, pumice, pen, ink, knife, horn, rule, plummet, wax, sand. It will be noted that a pen wiper is not upon the list. In olden times, but one kind of pen was used, one cut from a goose quill with the feathers left on the handle. The selection and manufacture of these goose quill pens was a matter of considerable care in the beginning and of constant watchfulness and mending till the pen was worn out. One of the indispensable qualities of a colonial schoolmaster was that he was a good pen-maker and pen-mender. It often took the master and usher two hours to make the pens for the school. Boys studied arithmetic at eleven years of age, but were not allowed to make pens in school till they were twelve years old. Ink was not bought in convenient liquid form as at present. Each family, each person, had to be an ink manufacturer. The favorite method of ink-making was through the dissolving of ink powder. Liquid ink was but seldom seen for sale. In remote districts of Vermont, Maine, and Massachusetts, homemade ink, feeble and pale, was made by steeping the bark of swamp maple in water, boiling the decoction till thick, and diluting it with copperas. Each child brought to school an ink bottle or ink horn filled with the varying fluid of domestic manufacture. A book called The District School written as late as 1834, shows the indifferent quality of the ink used. The writer complains that the parents made a poor ink of vinegar, water, and ink powder, which the child could not use, and permitted to dry up while he borrowed of the teacher. The inkstand is then used at the evening meetings as a candlestick. Other inkstands with good ink are seized and used for the same purpose 
and the ink ruined with grease and nothing left to write with when the teacher sets his scholars to work there are no remains of old times that put us more closely in touch with the men women and children who moved and lived in these shadowy days than do the letters they wrote old james howells said over two centuries ago letters are the idea and the truest mirror of the mind they show the inside of a man certainly the most imaginative mind must be touched with a sense of dearness to the heart of the writer whose yellowed pages he unfolds and whose fading words he deciphers the roll of centuries cannot dim the power of written words in the prince library in boston are the manuscripts known under the various titles of the mather papers the cotton papers the tory papers etc they are delightful to see and to read for the ink is still clear and black the paper firm and good the letters well formed and the text breathes a spirit of kindness affection and loving thoughtfulness that speaks of the beauty of puritan home life some of the letters are written by puritan women and these letters are uniformly well spelt well written and intelligent perhaps only intelligent women were taught to write these letters are on fine dutch paper there was no english writing paper till the time of william and mary they are carefully folded with due regard to the etiquette of letter folding and plainly and neatly addressed the letters are very tender and gentle sometimes they are written to children they begin my dear child my endeared son to my dearly loved friend and child one ends with my endeared love committing thyself and thy duty and service to all our friends and to the protection of the almighty i am thine a mother addresses on the outside her letter to her son in these words to my very good friend these present etc john cotton addresses a letter externally thus these for the reverend his very dear brother mr increase mather teacher of a church at boston present sometimes the address ran messenger present these two etc hence it may be seen that the word present sometimes seen on modern letters properly is the imperative verb present occasionally the word haste post haste was seen as on english letters but i have never seen the old postal inscription haste post haste on your life on your life a very genuine and pleasing letter was written by john quincy adams when he was nine years old 
to his father, President John Adams. Braintree, June the 2nd, 1777. Dear Sir, I love to receive letters very well, much better than I love to write them. I make but a poor figure at composition. My head is much too fickle. My thoughts are running after bird's eggs, play and trifles, till I get vexed with myself. I have but just entered the third volume of Smollett, though I had designed to have got it half through by this time. I have determined this week to be more diligent, as Mr. Thaxter will be absent at court, and I cannot pursue my other studies. I have set myself a stent, and determined to read the third volume half out. If I can but keep my resolution, I will write again at the end of the week, and give a better account of myself. I wish, sir, you would give me some instruction with regard to my time, and advise me how to proportion my studies and my play. In writing I will keep them by me, and endeavor to follow them. I am, dear sir, with a present determination of growing better yours. P.S. Sir, if you will be so good as to favor me with a blank book, I will transcribe the most remarkable occurrences I meet with in my reading, which will serve to fix them upon my mind. We cannot wonder at the precision and elegance of the letter-writing of our forebears when we know the painful precepts of parents in regard to their children's penmanship and composition. In the letters written by Ephraim Williams, a plain New England farmer, from his home in Stockbridge in the years 1749 at Sequin to his son Elijah, while the latter was in Princeton College, is shown the respect felt for a good handwriting. Nearly every letter had some such sentences as these. I would entreat you to endeavor daily to improve yourself in writing and spelling. They are very ornamental to a scholar, and the want of them is an exceeding great blemish. I desire you would observe in your writing to make proper distances between words. Don't blend your words together. Use your utmost endeavors to spell well. Consult all rules likely to help you. Such words as require it always begin with a capital letter. It will much grace your writing. Try to mend your hand in writing every day all opportunities you can possibly get. Observe strictly gentlemen's method of writing and superscribing. It may be of service to you. You can scarce conceive what a vast disadvantage it will be to leave the college and not be able to write and spell well. Learn to write a pretty fine hand, as you may have occasion. 
He urges him to study the spelling rules laid down in the youth's instructor in the English tongue, and tells him not to follow his, the father's, writing for an example, as he has but common English learning. He reproves, admonishes, and finally says Elijah's sisters will prove better scholars than he is if he does not have a care, which was a bitter taunt. Major Delaney of Maryland wrote to his little daughter some very intelligent advice, of which these lines are a portion. In letter-writing, as in conversation, it will be found that those who substitute the design of distinguishing themselves for that of giving pleasure to those whom they address must ever fail. Having decided upon what is proper to be said, accustom yourself to express it in the best possible manner. Always use the words that most exactly correspond with the ideas you mean to express. There are fewer synonym words in our language than is generally supposed, as you will find in looking over your dictionary. It has been remembered upon as a great excellence of General Washington's writing that no one could substitute a single word which could so well express his meaning i have heard whether it be true or not i cannot say that for seven years of his life he never wrote without having his dictionary before him the letters of aaron burr written at a little later period to his beloved daughter theodosia show an unvarying and incessant pains to form perfection in letter-writing as displayed by lord chesterfield in his letters to his son when she was but ten or twelve we find burr giving her minute instruction as to her penmanship its size shape the formation of sentences the spelling, the exact use of synonyms. He sends her sentences, bidding her return them in a more elegant form to translate them into Latin. He exhorts her to study the meaning, use, and etymology of every word in his letter. He has her keep for him a daily journal written in a narrative style. Even when on trial for treason in 1808, he still instructed her, reproving her for her negligent failure to acknowledge letters received. He commended her style, saying she had energy and aptitude of expression. Altogether, I can fancy no rule of correct epistolary conduct left unsaid by Burr to his daughter. That he had a high opinion of her powers we cannot doubt, but the specimens of her composition that exist show no great brilliancy or originality. As books multiplied after the Revolution, many letters were modeled on effusions that had been seen and admired in print. This, at a loss of much naturalness and quaintness of expression, Letter-writing guides formed the most pernicious influence. 
Miss Stoughton of East Windsor inviting sprightly Nancy Williams of East Hartford to a gay party began her note in this surprising way. Worthy lady! Children and grown people, too, had a very reprehensible habit of scribbling in their books. Of course, each owner wrote his name, with more or less elegance and accompanying flourishes, according to his capacity. Some very valuable autographs have by this means been preserved. A single title page will often bear the names of several owners. They also wrote various rhymes and sentiments, which might be gathered under the head of title page lore. The most ancient rhyme I have seen is dated 1635, and is in an ancient cocker's arithmetic. John Green, or Graves, his book, God give him grace therein to look, not only to look, but to understand, that learning is better than house or land. This rhyme is frequently seen sometimes with added lines. When land is gone and money spent, then learning is most excellent. If this you see, remember me. Another rhyme is, steal not this book, for if you do, the devil will be after you. Longer and more formal rhymes are found in the books of older owners. Occasionally a child's book had a valentine sentiment, or a riddle, or a drawing of hearts and darts. Crude pictures of Indians and horses are many. I have seldom found verses from Bible or religious sentiments written in childish hands. Whether this is the result of profound respect or of indifference I cannot tell. As a special example of book scribbling, one of historical interest is given. A page of the famous White Bible, which contains the entry, much disputed of genealogical and historical societies, that John Howland married Governor Carver's grand daughter. Reader's note, this is spelled G-R-A-N-D hyphen D-A-R-T-E-R. End of chapter 7